0: Well, it is good to see you. Very good to see you. Hello to my friends at 33rd and of course Waterford, my people at Lake Mary. I hope OJ is wearing a sensible sweater today. I'm sure that he is so handsome in those sweaters. How are you all doing? Uh, it is an honor to be with you today, but like really, how are you doing? Because this is the in-between week, isn't it? This is like Christmas is over and the whole thing is done. And like, there was just like so many people and cookies and just so much happening such a joyous celebration I found myself <laughs> at one point like it was 9 30 in the morning and I'm drinking a cup of coffee and there's like a little candy cane cookie in the other hand and you're just eating a cookie at 9 30 and you're like in what other scenario are we just eating cookies at 9 30. <laughs> Christmas that's when you eat cookies at 9:30. it's just a lot uh, and this is kind of the week after and the week before it's not new years yet we're just kind of waiting on that we're just here together and I know that Christmas and all of December really it could be a lot of emotion. Uh, It's a fair guess that for many of us, the month of December carries with it a bucket of different kinds of feelings. There is probably some mixture of joy and sorrow, of expectancy and loss, of yearning and waiting and wanting and fulfillment and spiritual delight and spiritual questioning and families and cookies and the whole thing, right? It's just a lot of feeling. And so here, this week... In the in-between week, I'm glad we're, we're together because this is the week where the, the guest speaker comes in because the church staff is completely smoked. They are done. They just worked 11 78-hour days, and they did it while wearing suits and Christmas dresses, right? And so now it's just you and me, and we're here together in the in-between. So what I want to do today is really simple. I just want us to rest a little bit. I'm not going to give you a ton of directives or new, huge, gigantic things to think about or ponder. I just want to walk through together a lovely and significant passage of Scripture so that we can remember together what it was like, what the world was like before Christmas, right, in a pre-Jesus world. Look where we are at today in the beautiful aftermath of Christmas and just take a peek, just a small peek at what may be next I thought about calling this sermon, The Ghost of Christmas Past, Present, and Future, which was just a perfect title. And actually, yes, that's what we're going to call this sermon. I'm going to commit to that now. Um, It does seem a little messed up because who plays Scrooge? Obviously, it's Jim, but we can't do that to him. Anyhow, we'll continue on. Uh, So today we're going to find and we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Galatians. In fact, all of our time, which if you are not aware, no big deal. It's uh, written by a man named Paul. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Galatia, which is now the present day area of Turkey. And he wrote this to them around 50 AD. So this is a very young church that Paul is writing this letter to. And you don't, if you don't know this, like in the Bible, it's, it's like you're reading someone's mail. So we really are reading a letter that Paul wrote to this very young church, this very young group of followers of Jesus. And we're going to look specifically at Galatians 3. 23 through 25, and 4, 4 through 7. You'll notice that I skipped a little bit there in the middle. It's not because I'm trying to be clever or dupe you. It just gets a little repetitive. So we're just going to hit the high points on both sides. Um, I'm going to read it to you first. Uh, It's in your bulletin if you want. If you want to open your Bibles, that's fine. If you just want to listen, that's fine. We'll just let the entire scripture wash over us, and then we will walk through it a bit at a time. Here we go. Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, until Christ, had, until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we may receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So the scripture starts in the past tense. The Ghost of Christmas Past, we're totally rolling with that now. The Ghost of Christmas Past, right? Paul begins the passage by reminding us what life was like. He writes, before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law. We were locked up. Now at this point, he is speaking to a group of people, right? The Church of Galatia, he is speaking to a group of people who have for generations upon generations, like for 1,500 years, been living under something called the law. It's also known kind of as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Maybe that's just me, but the law, let's sing it together, or not. Um, The law was an instruction, right? It was a set of instructions in those five books to Israel and it was was a life that they were supposed to live as stipulated in the covenant. You've read some of the law before, even if you don't know you've read it, you've probably heard some of it before, right? The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, Charlton Heston, no big deal, you're welcome, right? (laughs) Those are the Ten Commandments, those are just a piece of the law, but the law didn't end there, it got more complex. Because it continued and continued and continued for hundreds of laws given by God to people for them to follow. Leviticus, right? The book of Leviticus is all about sacrificing things at the altar, and it's gross. But it was these hundreds of laws, laws in ancient Israel that functioned and maintained a means of social order and and helped people identify with the covenant, i.e. it helped them to say publicly, we follow God. By following these laws, they were saying that. The laws maintained a social order. The laws ensured that the authority of the palace and the temple was recognized and obeyed. I heard it described actually today at our lunch table to our daughter. It was like a last minute write this in the sermon, right? Brianne was describing it to Lucy or Eve today. She said, God gave people the law in the same way we give our dog a fence. The fence gives the dog room to run, but also keeps the dog safe and doing what it's supposed to be doing. Well done. That was perfect, right? And, all, and, I, and though the idea of the law had more to do with survival in a harsh and dangerous environment, right? There were things like cleanliness, which were big and life-saving, and so it was necessary for them to follow some of these hygienic laws. The law, like Israelite society, eventually became extremely complex. As a result there was this legalistic formula that became ritualistic and the law took on a rigid character which had much more to do with the with the maintenance of social structures than the actual administration of God's justice. Paul spends a massive amount of all of his writing struggling with the law and what happens when we break the law, but we don't know it, or what happens when we didn't mean to break the law, but we do break the law, and now we're really in a quandary. Like, how do we deal with this, right? He is struggling with all of these laws and how to process and how to live his life in a way that still honors God, but follows these immense series of laws. It reminds me of when I went to India. A couple of years ago, I got the opportunity with International Justice Mission to go and visit a couple cities in India, and we went to Kolkata, and it's just a beautiful, magical place. The food, the people, the, the way everything is painted. I mean, India is just a beautiful place, and in there, we got to visit this Hindu temple, and it was just, you know, this crush of people, and folks are everywhere, and you're walking towards this temple, and you kind of can realize that the entire city is built in a way that as you're moving towards the temple, you are like the entire city is geared towards like pushing people into that center place. And so we do kind of take a pilgrimage and we are walking towards this Hindu temple and there's people pushing and clamoring to get in. And outside there were endless rows of shops. I brought a picture of it. There are these beautiful just just shops that are selling flowers and pigments and uh and uh and for the pigments that you had for like face painting and they're just selling all of this stuff and all of these shops were designed in a way that you would go and you would shop at all of them because you needed to have all of the things that the shops sold in order to gain access to the temple in order to gain access to the priest in order to gain access to god right Once we finally got in the temple, we've gone past all these shops, we're finally in the temple. I mean, we're shoulder to shoulder and there's people everywhere. It was wild. There was sacrifice. There was animal sacrifice. There were just rooms for different kinds of prayer. There were people offering up all of these flowers and things that they had bought at the shops and everyone was doing their very best to gain access to God through these series of, of laws. Literally, thousands of people and countless amounts of money make this place holy. These are people who work endlessly, daily, tirelessly to do everything they can to gain access to God, to gain access to eternity, to gain access to a better life. To them, there is a separation. There is a them and us. There is a caste system, which is now illegal there, but still there is this underlying current that there are some that are not, and there are some that are better. And this isn't a judgment on them. This is the reality for people who live in that culture. And I think of it like it's kind of what Paul was speaking about, right? When he's talking to people in this pre, who are like aware of this pre-Jesus time, because he is speaking to them and he is telling them and he is acknowledging that the world had gotten kind of wonky And this legalism that they had begun to practice was just overtaking them, and they were doing everything they could possibly do to make God happy. And in the days before Jesus, the people were basically obeying the law, but they were also manipulating it, and they were losing the spirit of the law, which is to draw closer to God. But it's also helpful to note that when Paul is talking about the law, he's talking in kind of a parallel structure of the law. He's talking about the literal laws of the day. He's talking about the legalism. He's talking about how just everything has gone sort of haywire and there needs to be a new reset, which is coming, right? But he is also, I believe, aware of kind of the laws that we build within ourselves, The things that we do that make us feel as though we are worthy of being in the presence of God. Of course, right, this is what we do. We all do this, or maybe I'll personalize it, I do this. I do this all the time. I think that in my less than wonderful moments that the voice of God is actually one that is demanding of me to do like, more Bible study, more church, more connect groups, more ministry work, more tithe, more you know, better parenting, better grammar, right? Like That's what God is asking of me, right? Over and over again, I think that I cannot be around God because those things are not living up, right? And I set up these little shops in my heart, and it's all of these things that I have to go and visit and do and make sure that are perfect before I get access to God. And my own stuff, and I bet our stuff doesn't end there because our own sinful nature enters into this because we know ourselves, We know that even if we set up all the shops and everything is just right, we know our own heart, right? We know the hidden stuff. We know the embarrassing stuff. We know the stuff that maybe we sometimes feel like even a little bit of shame about. We know the parts of our heart, and we know that God knows that as well, which adds to the problem. So we find ourselves sometimes thinking that there is all this stuff that we have to do in order to gain access to God. There are all of these laws, but also if we find that we are able to somehow miraculously check all the boxes, how could God ever really love us? Because we know ourselves, and so does he. Here's the good news. Paul begins the chapter by speaking in the past tense. Remember he says before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, right? He's using past tense and he continues speaking in past tense by saying, so the law was our guardian. Guardian's an interesting word. N.T. Wright, who I've never preached a sermon without quoting him, so I will continue on now. He is a famous and living New Testament scholar. There are books available of his in the, um, in the bookshop area out there. You should totally read some of his stuff, right? N.T. Wright. He says it this way. He translates it as, we are no longer under the rule of the babysitter, which is perfect. Because when I read the story of Israel, we see people who are behaving as children. In fact, the entire narrative of the Old Testament is one of Israel right, following God, then doubting that God exists, then God having to remind Israel that he is who he says he is, then the people rejoicing, then Israel kind of forgetting who God is. Then God having to prove who he is. Then them rejoicing. And it just goes over and over and over again, right? He sends manna, yay, we're excited. Now we're hungry, where are you? Over and over. God is raising these children throughout the Old Testament and they needed a babysitter. It's like a child who for the first year of their life when you pay peek with them does not have the cognition to realize that when you're hidden, you're not gone right? It takes them that first year to realize that you're just hiding behind your hands, that you're not leaving them. And so the description of the law as a babysitter is a really accurate one because the law held an extremely important place in society. It did give people a framework by which to mature into the fullest and and fullest measure of what it meant to follow God. Likewise, some of these rules and laws are helpful within us. For example, we do not have to read the Bible in order to have access to God. We do not have to be in a connect group in order to have access to God. We do not have to be in community. We do not have to pray in order for God to love us. But God has given these things to do, maybe these very big things to do, to better understand who he is. So there's a place for the law, the disciplines and the rules that God has given us by which to live by. The New Testament and a lot of what we're gonna be looking at as a church this year as we look at the life of Jesus will be about living under those opportunities to grow closer to God, to be more realized into the image of Christ for the sake of other people, right? There is a proper place for the law in our heart, but the law is not what saves us. Doing or not doing all that God has set forth is not what was going to save the Galatians And it's not what will save us. What saves the day is what Paul declares next. Because now, Paul switches. And we're going from past tense, ghost of Christmas past, right? We were held in in custody, to present tense. And he says, chapter three, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The ghost of Christmas present is here. And those laws that once gave people access to God are done the generations and generations and generations of struggle and worry and waiting and doing what they had to do to access god are finished can you imagine the minds of the people who were living in that reality can you i like it's almost impossible to imagine or even to contextualize the massive shift that was happening in the lives of the faithful jews who were beginning to understand jesus but whose entire world was being rocked their dna Like, who they were was being fundamentally altered. It's as if someone just showed up and said, hey, we've recycled the Constitution. There is no more American government. We are merging with Canada. They are lovely people. I hope you have a great rest of your day, right? (laughs) Like, part of that wouldn't be such a bad deal. We're not going to do that. But like, right? Like, we get into our heads and we just think, no, all the framework that we have is gone and it's scary, and we don't know what to do, and that's the church, the early church at the time. I think it could be us, right? It's the way that the entire planet worked, because for people who were hearing Paul's words, the way they were being told to be faithful was now completely different. They were no longer slaves to the law. When they woke up in the morning, they no longer had to start their day by figuring out where they were going, how they were going to make their way to the temple, how they were going to have enough money to buy birds and to get the sacrifices needed for the temple. They no longer had to worry which days were cleansing rituals, what the calendar was. They were free, and they were free because Jesus was born. I guess if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that the miracle of Christmas And what we just celebrated this season, why we ate so much stuff and why we just generally overindulged in joy is because that the reality of Advent was mind-blowing and it was mind-blowing for them and it continues to alter our reality today. Jesus came not to be part of some Advent scene with wise men and shepherds, though that is lovely and beautiful, right? He came to abolish the law. He came to remove the obstacles between us and God, which is what Paul speaks of in the next chapter. Now we're at chapter 4. Paul tells us, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and don't miss this, he says, and born under the law, right? Jesus was born under the law. And that's kind of the punchline of this whole thing. We were slaves to sin, we were slaves to this law that had, we had to so rigorously follow in order to access God. But what God offers us and what Paul writes down is that God sent his son to be the redemption of our sin and that, sin was, and, and that son was born under the law. And it matters a lot That Jesus was born into a broken system of laws that gave people access to God. Because it means that Jesus fully understood, understands the complexities of the world that people lived in and that people live in today. He fully understood, like in a real visceral sense, the struggle that Jews and Gentiles alike would encounter as a result of following him. He knew how countercultural it was to tell people over and over again, you have heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. He wasn't blasé about it. He knew that what he was doing was saying, you have heard and is fundamental into your DNA and completely is going to change your world this, but I'm telling you this. He was born under the law. When he was a boy, presumably, he followed the law. right? He grew up, he's born the Messiah, but you can surmise that in his teens and 20s, he did what everybody else did. It's helpful to remember that like, everything changed on Christmas in terms of what we fundamentally understand, but actually not that much happened when Jesus was born because he was born a baby and he didn't start his public ministry until 30 years later. And so people are aware that the Messiah, that the Messiah exists, but for those 30 years, The world is still living as the world lived, and Jesus is taking all of that in and understanding what a good law-abiding Jew would do in this context. Why that matters is because he understood what it meant for them to stop abiding and following the law, and he understands what it means for us as well. He knows how hard it is for us to believe that he is who he said he is. Jesus knows what a big deal it is. And this is the beauty and the the great mystery of God incarnate, God with skin on, the person of Jesus. Because in one hand, he holds the keys and the knowledge to all eternity. He is the beginning and the end. But on the other hand, he gets you. And he gets every hair on your head. And he understands us. And he holds both of those things in perfect, beautiful tension. For some in these rooms today, the reality that Jesus loves you is brand new information. Well, good news, like he does. That is true. For others, this may kind of fall under the heading of sort of a, like a typical gospel presentation, right? Maybe we've been to a Billy Graham crusade or we've been to youth group. But we know that Jesus loves me and we've sung the song, right? But I have to remind myself over and over with like pretty frequently of the fact that Jesus loves me, because I lose sight of that with stunning regularity. I lose sight of the fact that he actually cares for me, like Jesus actually delights in my abilities and he understands my hardships. He takes joy in who I've become and he mourns the sin that still ravages me. He holds me in tension and he loves me as I am. I was in a counseling session a few months ago, like I was being counseled, just, you know, don't worry, I'm okay. But right, so I was in counseling a few months ago, and I go like about once a year, you know, you just got to check everything out, kick the tires a little bit, make sure things are going well, and things were not going well, right? So um, so I go, and like, I love my counselor, and she is great, but uh, they, I don't like the, like, um, kind of like games that sometimes, <laughs> that sometimes they play in counseling. So they'll do this thing uh, where she'll say, and she's tried it a few times and she's been kind of sneaky about it. Um, but she'll say like, okay, I want you to now, you know, they speak in that voice. I want you to now sit and look at this empty chair. And I want you to pretend that you're, you know, your dad. Okay, that your dad, right, is in that is in that chair. And I want you to say the things to him that you've really had in your heart that you want to say. And like, so you're supposed to look over there and speak to that chair. And I get what she's doing. Like, I like I understand it. She's trying to get me to externalize the voice and the things that are in my head. I understand him into school, like Fritz Perls, Gestalt therapy. Like, I know what this whole moment is about. But I cannot, for the life of me, do these things because unlike Zach, I have no ability like to act or pretend. And so I just look at the chair and I'm like, this is an empty chair. I feel dumb and I begin to laugh, right? It is un- I'm unable, <laughs> I'm unable to do it. And so I just laugh. And so every once in a while she tries to get me to do it another way. And I still laugh. But recently in this most recent counseling session, she said, here's what I want you to do. And like, she had that gleam in her eye, like she knew she had gotten me and she did. She said, I want you to describe where you are right now. Like just right now, where do you find yourself? What are the reasons that you are in counseling right, uh, right now? Right, And I had to just sit there and I voiced it. Like, I'm not okay with this. I'm wrestling with this. I feel a proclivity towards this. I'm out of touch with this. And I'm like, it was kind of like a, it's like hard to say it all at one time because you're just like, Ugh. there's like a weight of a lot of my own stuff on my shoulders right now. And then she said, I'd like you now to describe what it would be like if all of that was gone. And I want you to really dream, right? So I began to say the things out loud that were some of the, like the little dreams that were really tucked deep in my heart. Not like this relationship would be better, but like this would be better. And it's that thing, you think, this is the weight I can never have off my shoulders in my life. But she's like, just voice it. Don't think about how crazy it is, how unlikely it is, just voice it. And I really went out on a limb. And she said, okay, here's what I want you to do. And this is where I'm like, okay, well, the game has failed and now I'll begin to laugh, but you know, it just worked out. She said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go sit in that chair because in that chair over there is everything you just hoped for. And I just want you to sit there for a minute and feel what it feels like. And so I'm like, okay, goofy, right? But I got up, I went over and I sat down in the chair and like she got me. Because I had never felt such incredible freedom. It was just such a moment like where everything else was over there and I was just sitting in a place of freedom and hope and optimism. And it was such an addictive feeling because I was so motivated to do the work to figure out how to actually get my life from here to over here. It was such a beautiful short-term moment of freedom but it was, I needed more of it. This is why it matters that Christ was born under the law because he fully gets how terrible it is to live under the law. But he knows, he knows that if we can just look outside of our self, of our psychology, of our sin, sin and our shame, if we can just look over here for just a moment and see the hope that is there, that we'll feel it and we'll feel a grace and an acceptance that we have never felt before in our life. And the love of Christ will just warm our cold souls. That's why he had to live in the tension. And you've got to know that Jesus loves you personally. And if you can be brave enough to acknowledge that, like that what is keeping you at bay from God is not too big for Jesus to handle, like I'm proud of you, give that to him. You have not done something that has removed you from the love of God. It is just not true, whatever your thing is. Let's get out of this for a second right, and take this into the practical, because what does it mean? What does it mean to actually release that, to actually give our junk to Jesus and feel that freedom? In a couple minutes, we are, uh, like, we're going to have a time where, for some of us, we're going to take communion. For some of us, we're just going to have a time where we get to sit and pray And the purpose of this time of prayer and or communion, right, is not just to have some moment of remembrance of what Jesus did. It's not to have some moment of remembrance of, you know, Christmas in the middle of a church service. It's not just to sit there and think nice thoughts about Jesus. The purpose is to move to the other seat. The purpose of communion, the purpose of sitting in prayer with God is to acknowledge our frailty, and then to let our bodies mingle with the body and blood of Christ. So if there is something in you that is just trembling inside you, please tell Jesus, maybe for the very first time today, that you are giving your life over to him. Bring that to the table. You don't have to know all the right words to say. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to have like, very special prayers. Just say, Jesus. I'm here. See how that works. And for some, this will be the 10,000th time we've had to surrender and to remember that Jesus was born under the law because he understands that we are slaves to the law without him. Maybe you, maybe I, we need to yet again take this communion moment, take these moments of prayer to remember hope and to remember grace and to remember that there is a life worth living And remember that today, the issues of today, the burdens of today, just simply do not have the final say in your life. Christmas happened because God knew that there was more to life than simply spinning our wheels and trying to appease him. There was new life, and there's redemption, and there is grace. Which leads us to the final ghost, the ghost of Christmas future. What happens when we genuinely surrender to Christ, I don't always like the word like surrender because it's such a big word and sometimes it turns into like a little Christianese, right? What does it mean? Let's say a different way. What does it mean if we believe that Jesus was Jesus? What happens if we believe that there is actually a God and he actually sent his child and that child grew up and died for our sins and for our salvation? And what if we believe that it is our desire to follow him all the days of our life? Parenthetically, those are the questions that I was asked when I was baptized as a part here at Summit. I was asked, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes, Do you believe that he died on a cross for your sin and your salvation? Yes, and is it your desire to follow him all the days of your life? Yes, these are the baptism questions and these are the questions that I am asking you to ponder today. You can say yes to those things. You can say yes to them now in your heart when we take communion in the moments of prayer and you've got to know that if you say yes to those things, God is right there with you. Paul continues chapter 4, verse 5, by saying this. Remember, Jesus was born under the law, he said, but he continues by saying, to redeem those who are under the law that we may receive adoption to sonship. See how the tenses have changed yet again? Past, present, now we may do this, future. Paul is telling us that if we acknowledge what happened, if we see what is really true, we will receive adoption, Let's camp out on the word adoption, because it is both salient for our conversation today and important for me, because many of you know I have had the opportunity to be a part of an adoption story of our oldest daughter, Eve, and I just realized I'm gonna cry. Like, this is the moment like, where you see someone like 50 yards away running towards you, and you're like, is that person running towards me? Yes, he is, and that person is my tears. Here we go, right? So <laughs> um, so Eve is six years old and she is magical. And she is just everything you could hope for and a daughter and a friend. It is also worth noting she is one of two children. The other one is Lucy, who is also a magical, wonderful friend. Um, as you're preparing, as, as you're preparing to adopt a child, and some of you have been through this or considering this, you have a lot of questions. It's a really complex thing, and you have a lot of questions that you really need to answer before you can dive headfirst into the process. Fortunately, as a part of Summit, I knew there were a, a lot of other families who were adopted, and so I reached out to one of those families, the Parkers, you know, John and Brandy Parker, and said, "Hey." Can we just ask all the questions? And you could tell, like, this was the 90th time they'd done it. And they're like, yes, come over. So we go over to their house. I think we had, like, dessert or something, played with all of their sweet kids, and the kids all go to bed. And then we started the conversation. <laughs> and we talked about everything, right? We talked about, like, you know, How does it work to adopt? How do you find an adoption agency? How do you pick which country? Do you adopt internationally or domestically? And you just have, you know, how much does it cost? How do you fly there? How many times, just so many questions. And they just click through the questions. Um, But at some point, you have to ask the question. The question why you're really there. Because there's a lot of questions, but there's really only one question. Some people don't have it. I had this question. And the question is, will I love my child? (laughs) Right? Because it's like, let's be honest. To adopt is like like not your biological child, and so you really have to ask the question and wrestle with, will this child actually be my kid? It's not like will I have the capacity to love, it's will this kid who is adopted into our family be my kid? Of course now I know the answer is yes, but John and Brandy, like they knew the question was coming, I think they probably answered it for other people before, and I remember John just saying, Yes. Yes, she will. (laughs) And he said it with such assurance and kindness that I realized that there were things about adoption that would remain a mystery until they just happened. This was, of course, the case with Eve coming home. The moment I met her... (laughs) Ooh, here we go. Come on, come on, man. Right? The moment we met her, it was not just some child in a care center. You walk into a room and you've been flying all day and you're just like, everything is different. You don't understand the language and you walk in and somehow by the great mystery of God, you walk in and there's your baby laying in a crib. And it's just this great mystery. It was our daughter who we had finally met up with. Adoption is beautiful and wonderful and it is impossible to describe to anyone really, I think maybe who hasn't done it, right? But it is so much deeper than just a child joining a family. It is a mingling of souls. Eve is my flesh and blood. And we, us in these rooms, are adopted into the family of God the exact same way. Paul uses the term adoption purposely because it's more than just to belong. It's not just being part of a club or being part of a church. It's you and Christ as a family. And it means that we are grafted into a much larger story. It means that the things of this world, the things that so deeply trouble and consume us, the idols that we make in our life, the distractions that we have, these are all just merely parts of life. But when we are adopted, we are now living into a story that is larger and broader because we are now sitting at the table with Christ, our brother, who does not see us as the other, He sees us as his sibling. God sees us as his actual child and we are his children. And we have been brought into a family with both the knowledge and the excitement of eternity, of heaven. But it also, here on earth, gives us a perspective on that which is real and that which is lasting. It's tempting on kind of the end of the year to begin cycling through New Year's resolutions. And that's fine. I have resolutions, you know, get healthier, learn some new things. A few years ago, I preached a sermon here, and I told everyone my New Year's resolutions, and then I didn't do them, like, at all. Like, it was like to golf and build a chair. Like, what a silly resolution, and why would I share it out loud? Because everybody just asked me about it for years, and was like, no, I don't know how to golf. Like, I'm terrible at it, right? It's such an odd thing. But we, what we basically do this time of year is we look forward as we try to grab onto some pretty small things that will make a big difference in our lives, and it's fine. Hobbies are great. Reading the Bible more is great. Going to a gym is great. All of these things are great, but in this in-between week, I want us to take a moment and just sit on the tail end of Christmas and on the front end of 2018 and I want us to try for just a moment to have a glimpse of a larger perspective. Dare I say it, a kingdom perspective. Because in total honesty, this time next year we're gonna be doing the exact same resolutions again to you know lose a little bit of weight, right? Our whole life is just a series of trying to make these little machines work better, which is great. But if I can implore you you to consider something else, it is this, that it is not everything. We are adopted into the kingdom of God, and that is everything. We sit here arm in arm with the creator of the universe who looks at you, knows everything about you, and loves you. And in return, asks you to love him. And sometimes we are so... I am so locked into today and the troubles and the issues and the little laws that we have built in our heart that we forget to see the face of God who is overjoyed with us. This isn't a shaming thing. This is a sermon that I'm preaching to myself. I am the worst at having perspective, which in and itself is a terrible sentence, right? But maybe we can do this together. Maybe while we focus on the minutia of living life, we can also bask in the reality of our adoption. This year, as I said, as a church, we're going to spend a year learning about and talking about delighting in the life and the person of Jesus. Maybe this year, maybe 2018, can be the year that we actually look up enough to remember that what we're actually studying is real and that it's personal and that it's hope for us today. One more story about my kids and then I'm out. Uh recently, the kids are the kids are currently five and six, as I said, and one of the great passages of childhood is is uh, learning to ride a bicycle. The truth is, and they're both in it, and they both have the little bicycles, the baskets and the bells and the whole thing, right? And the truth is, uh, I am, Brianne, my wife, did a much better job at walking through this process with them than I am, because I am just so cranky and unkind about it. Like I was just the worst at teaching them how to ride a bike. I thought they were gonna fall down. And I didn't quite think they were ready. And the next thing I know I'm inside and I look out the front window and Brian's just like holding on to the back of a seat and running behind him and you can see like the gyroscope in Eve's mind is starting to center out and it's like, oh my gosh, she's going to ride a bike. Sure enough, like five minutes later, she's zipping around the block, and about a week later, Lucy's going around the block, and it's like, look at this, they're riding bikes, and I just stood inside and was cranky the whole time, right? But, uh, <laughs> but I did add one thing to the process, which is now what I'll use as a sermon illustration to talk about how great I am, right? So one, <laughs> I just realized, like, branded the whole thing, and I said one sentence, and here it is for you. Um, so. When the kids were like riding away, I saw that there was just a lot of wobbling. And they just kept wobbling and wobbling and wobbling. And I just kind of kept trying to figure out like how are they so steady sometimes and wobbling others? And I noticed as they were riding that they would look at their feet. When they would look down at their feet and they're studying the gears and how to keep their feet on the pedals, they would kind of lose sight of it. Ride a bike sometime in a safe place. And when you look straight down, you just, right, you're all over the place. And I would just yell at them, Lucy, Look up! And you know, they're riding away from me and they're not listening to me because I'm just cranky. But I'm like, Lucy, look up. Eve, look up. And sometimes they would just look up. And the moment they would fix their eyes on the horizon, steady. You get where the metaphor is going, right? We spend our lives looking at our feet, wobbling and worrying and being fearful and just moving into the grass. It's not a shameful thing. This can be life. I'm in it with you. But my deep prayer for us today is that as we look up, we would see what is real and what is steady, and what is ours. And that is a relationship with Christ. And you know what, I'm gonna dispel the mystery for you. We are all going to look down, and we're gonna forget, and we're gonna wobble, and we're gonna fall, then we're gonna get back on the bike, and we're gonna look ahead, and we're gonna go steady, and then we're gonna forget, and we're gonna do the cycle over and over and over again, because we are through our entire lives, children, trying to figure out how to ride this bike. It's okay. Today, I'm asking you to look up. As I read Paul's final words as the last moments of this sermon, I want to try the little counseling technique on you, and I can just feel collectively you just inhaled. You're like, I'm uncomfortable with these sorts of things. It's, I've made it not weird, I promise. Just f- trust me. I'm going to cash in what capital I've built with you. Just trust me right now. This is going to be okay. What I would like you to do is this, and if you don't want to do it, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to call you out, but please lean in and do this, okay? I would like you right now to close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I would like you to honestly and without reservation consider your life right now. I'd like you to consider that which is hard, that which is not as it should be. I'd like you to consider the sin and brokenness. I'd like you to consider the junk that you wish was different. Just like literally and metaphorically right now, I'd like you to sit in it. I'm gonna give you a second, just another moment, to consider it and to be really honest with yourself. Now keep your eyes closed. And if it's possible, would you stand up? Keep your eyes closed and stand up. Everybody, stand up. Yes, all the rooms, keep your eyes closed and stand up. Let me read to you what is true. Chapter 4, verse 6, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Look up. Let me see your eyes. You are no longer a slave. You are God's child and you are invited to the table for communion with him. Let's pray. Jesus, it is with great gratitude we stand here. And I pray that as we consider our own life, that we would in equal measure, and actually with greater weight, consider yours. Consider your love for us, your deep, deep, unending love for us. I pray that we would consider how you understand every little nook and cranny of our soul and you love us despite ourselves. I pray that for those of us that are in these rooms that doubt that you are real, I pray that you would in this moment reveal yourself to us and help us to know that even though a lot of it is confusing and a lot of it doesn't make sense, that you are real and that your son is real and that Christmas happened, and Jesus's life happened, not as something for us to simply remember, but for something for us to live into. And I pray, God, if there is someone in these rooms who has not yet said, God, I'm here, Jesus, I trust you, that they would, in their mind and heart right now, declare those things to be true. I pray that they would and we would all affirm that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That we believe that he died on a cross for our sins and for our salvation. And that it is, in fact, our desire to follow him all the days of our lives. God, thank you for setting this table for us and for bringing us to this place. Amen.